Um, this is, I'm not going to be speaking on Father's Day. Um, just, I don't, you know, it's, it, it, these Mother's Days and Father's Days are, are they're, they're weird days. Like, this is acknowledge um, the, it's kind of the awkwardness that these days can bring, the difficulty, the struggle, uh, the pain, the grief, um, maybe the, the suffering, as well as the joy and the celebration. And so, it's weird that faith isn't here, but I grew up in a pretty, pretty standard, like, kind of lower middle class home with two parents. I'm one of seven kids. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked a lot. But my parents loved me. And um, I, I, I mean, there's, like, let's not kid ourselves. There's a lot of fighting in my home. Like, there's seven children. Like, there's lots and lots of fighting, lots and lots of arguing, and a lot of dysfunction, but um, pretty, pretty normal. And actually, when I met Faith, um, I think I was 18, I don't remember, I, I was head over heels in love, like, immediately. Actually, our first date, don't laugh, Matthew, it's true. <laughs> that my, our first date, on my first actual day of being with Faith, I, I dropped her off at her, at her grandmother's house, and I said, that's the woman I'm going to marry. And I did. And I, what was weird is I told her that, like, nine days later, which... Here we are, almost 17 years married. Yeah, pretty wild, pretty intense. But I was all in right away, but Faith didn't grow up with a father. Her grandfather was like her surrogate dad, but she didn't know her dad until she was 16. And I had no concept of what that, what that was, what that meant, what that, what that would have been like for someone else. And so I actually watched my dad become a father to Faith, which was really uh, humbling and beautiful to see, um, you know, my dad extend this love and generosity to, to someone outside of kind of blood relation, but then humbling that I kind of took that for granted my whole life. I didn't really realize what that meant. At the same time, I was working in a, at a school care, my first kind of foray with working with kids, and I and it just so happened to be. I just actually I needed a job. I met Faith. And I was like, I told her I'm going to marry you. I needed money to buy a ring. And so I was at the Bible college, and this guy was like, hey, we are looking for someone to drive bus, which is a van, in and out of school care at this church. It's like, well, I, I need a job. I never considered working with kids. never thought about it, never wanted to. But I needed to buy a ring. And so I applied for this job, and I started working at this out-of-school care, where I think 80% of the families were kind of inner city, from broken homes, uh, single parents, mostly single moms. And I met all these kids that grew up without dads or had strained relationships with their fathers. And so it was a real year of growth for me and a real, like, jumping into um, to, to a different way that people live their lives. So I want to acknowledge that this morning. I was just talking about you. I want to acknowledge that, um, that the, those, the, the dads that we can celebrate uh, that are stable and loving, and that's wonderful. But there are all kinds of other dads who fill in the gaps. And the challenge, I think, for us as, as men and as women on kind of when we celebrate Mother's Day, but is to actually be that family of God. You actually become surrogate parents. You actually become surrogate fathers, even when you're not trying to be. And I don't think you can ever underestimate um, your capacity as a human being to extend love and care to someone else, older, younger, all around, and you actually kind of take the place, because you actually don't know uh, the impact that you may actually have on somebody, because um, you don't know their story. And as you get to know them, 
um, those relationships get deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's a really, really beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's really what I think the church, Christ is calling us to be, is that interwoven family um, to those who we can all love each other in that way. So, so I want to acknowledge that, that we're telling a lot of dad jokes because dad jokes are lame, and most dads tell lame jokes. But we want to celebrate the good men in our life, and that's all across the board, biological and non-biological. So with that, out of the, with that, uh, with that said, I would love to get uh, this thing on the, on the screen, Mike. Now, we did this for Mother's Day. And so that, why not do it for Father's Day? It's a little bit of a, of a different kind of thing. It's a little bit stretching. So on Mother's Day, if you remember, we got into groups and we kind of made, we kind of did some inductive study uh, in the scriptures themselves. So that means you're kind of going into the story of the scriptures and kind of seeing what does it, what does it speak to you, how, what, what jumps out at you. So what I'm going to do is, because we can't have this screen uh, and Zoom at the same time, I'm going to log into Zoom on my phone so that I can see uh, the Zoomers' answers, um, if it works. Uh, whoa, that's, that's weird. I'm watching myself watch myself. Here we go. Yeah. Oh, dear. It's right. <laughs> okay, there we go. Okay. So I need to see the chat. Okay, there we go. Can someone say hello? Oh, I'm here. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, maybe it won't work. This is weird. Mike and I are like, let's try this this morning. Maybe it won't work. I don't know. We'll see. Okay, it may not work, and if I can't, so if it doesn't work, Zoomers, I won't be able to interact with you. Otherwise, it would be really cool if we could interact. That'd be really neat. So what we're going to do is find like four or five people and get a piece of paper, and we're just going to spend a couple minutes. Uh, I'm going to read this, and then in your groups, you're going to spend a couple minutes just writing down the thing that, that jumps out at you. You don't have to do much thought about it, just something that really like stands out that that's weird or that's interesting, or that kind of catches your ear and sparks your imagination, okay? So I'll read it first, then we'll break into groups of four or five, and you don't have to do a lot of talking, and then we'll come back uh, together. Does that sound good? Oh, no. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, here we go. This is coming from Mark, chapter 10, verse 46. So they spent some time in Jericho as Jesus was leaving town, trailed by his disciples and a parade of people. A blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting alongside the road. When he heard that Jesus the Nazarene was passing by, he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, mercy, have mercy on me. Many tried to hush him up, but he yelled all the louder, Son of David, mercy, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped in his tracks. Call him over. They called him. It's your lucky day. Get up. He's calling you to come. Throwing off his coat, he was on his feet at once and came to Jesus. Jesus said, what can I do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. On your way, said Jesus. Your faith has saved and healed you. And that very instant, he recovered his sight and followed Jesus down the road. So for like five minutes grab a, a, a cluster of people, four or five people, and a pen, pen and piece of paper, and just 
sit together and just write down things that jump out at you. Okay, can everybody do that? Okay, I'll see you back here in four minutes. So let's, uh, let's don't interrupt some, some of the conversations going on. Let's, does anybody have some of their, their list they'd like to share? Just real quick. You don't have to do much explanation, just whatever just popped out at you. Okay, so he, he, Jesus healed him right away. He followed the, the blind man, knew that he could do it. Yeah, those are, those are excellent. Anybody else? What else? Anything else? Who else? Yes. Yeah. Right, right. And so he knew what, what Jesus was doing. And we found it interesting that Jesus said, well, you do what you do. Yeah. He, um, he even was looking more, just not the simple, but deeper. Right, so persistent, he knew, and Jesus was looking for something deeper in, in him. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah, cool. So the person who saw Jesus as God was actually blind. Oh, interesting. Right. Right. God wants to present her needs. Interesting. Elijah. So reversal, the blind man calls Jesus over, and Jesus is like, no, no, you come to me. Throws off his coat, which is strange, interesting. Anybody else? This, this group over here? Mm. Today's your lucky day, yeah, interesting, fascinating. This is a great job. Give yourselves a hand. Good job. <clears throat> so this is, this is, I can see by the looks on your faces, somewhat, uh, oh yeah, you guys, sorry. I, I forgot, you're not all lumped together, sorry, Megan. Well, I think okay. it's about believing is seeing. Mm. Uh, for me. Yes. Um, that, you know, his faith saved him. Right. And healed him. Yes. There. Yes. Um, Interesting. Not everybody, so lucky day, not everybody gets the chance. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, super casual. Yeah, no, no spitting in the face this time, right? No. Yeah. Very good. No, I, so you give yourselves another applause. Very good. 
So I can see that it's uncomfortable because it's, it's like, it's uncomfortable. It's hard. But you guys, I think, picked up on so many cues that I didn't even, like the reversal of the switches, that when you're in the scriptures, uh, these writers like Mark, they're not doing it on, on accident. They're, they're telling a brilliant, brilliant story, and there's such subtleties that really, like, change the whole dynamic. So I've bolded a couple of things that, that stood out to me. And so what I want to do is just, just tell the story as I see it. Uh, and I won't be long because uh, we'll actually, I think, we'll kind of get back to it. But, you know, you have to imagine Jericho is the first thing that kind of pops out to me. Who remembers the city of Jericho? Jo- Joshua, the walls come, tumbling. Do you want to sing that song? Should I sing it for you? No. Who remembers something else about Jericho? The God made a promise to, uh, to Joshua that if you build on this site again, like I'm coming down and I'm going to curse this site again. Remember that? Like the city was, was cursed. So, so Joshua comes into the conquest and he levels the city of Jericho uh, after marching around it for seven days. And the city's flattened and God says, don't ever build there again. It's a, it's a bad place. It's the same Jericho except a little bit different. So you have to imagine we are like almost at, at the bottom of the Dead Sea level. Like we are well below sea level at this point. And this area is so dry and so hot and so arid. And it's kind of just on the, just like on the cusp of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea is just over this way. But Jericho is actually an oasis. There's a creek there. There's a river that kind of runs through. And you have to imagine that though it's hot and dry, it is full of lush green life. And there are citruses, citrus trees and lemons and oranges and blossoms and figs and all kinds of delicious foods and fruits and things used for spices. This is a beautiful spot. And so beautiful, actually, that Cleopatra, the Egyptian uh, queen, loved this spot. That when she was alive, Mark Antony, her lover, gave it to, to her. This is like one of her refuge places. And so when King Herod comes along, uh, the, the maniacal king, he actually leases Jericho off of her, and he starts building beautiful uh, like public buildings around Jericho. And he builds an aqueduct, and he builds public buildings, and he builds his winter palace. This is a really famous spot with ancient history. But the city, because it had this old ruined spot that, that Joshua had destroyed, and these new ruined spots, it's kind of, like a, kind of like a sprawling kind of city. And it's a really, really important city because it's kind of comes, there's a, a highway that comes down uh, the Jordan River from up by the Galilee, by Galilee and Nazareth and all those northern parts of Israel, down south, right by the Dead Sea, and then juts east, or, or west, sorry, towards Jerusalem. So Jesus, in this story, in Mark, we know that Jesus has kind of pivoted from the Mount of Transfiguration. His whole kind of narrative kind of pivots. Mark's narrative pivots. Now Jesus is no longer focused on Capernaum and Galilee. His ministry is moving south. He's now on a one-way ticket down to Jerusalem, where he's going to die, where he said to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. The religious leaders are going to kill me. And then, and then three days later, I'm going to come back to life. He said this now three times to his disciples, and now they're actually made their way down towards Jericho. They've gone from Galilee in the north. They've kind of snaked down by that river path, and they're in Jericho. 
this beautiful oasis spot. But it's almost Passover, so they're not alone. There are probably thousands of people passing down this highway with Jesus. And they're all doing the same direction. They're all going to jut west towards Jerusalem, which is only about 28 kilometers away. But there's kind of a problem is that this, this, jut, this jut west is actually up kind of back up this ravine. So no, they're going to leave the Dead Sea area and have to climb back up towards Jerusalem, which is a really treacherous 28 kilometers. It's not a, it's not a straight mile. It's rocky and craggly and dangerous. This, I believe, is where the famous story of, uh, of the Good Samaritan takes place. Because it's a great place for, for, for people to wander and for people to get sacked. Bandits, robbers, marauders. It's a dangerous spot. So Jericho Place is a really significant, it's like a last, last kind of resting spot before you make your way towards Jerusalem. Really, really important city, which means that there's, it's, there's also a very high Roman presence there. This is a beautiful place for Romans to collect taxes. All the pilgrims that come from the north and all the pilgrims that come from the east are all going towards Jerusalem. This is a natural hub for tax booths. So if you're a, a, a student of the scriptures, like, hey, Mark is omitting a story. If you read ahead, Mark's forgetting a story. There's a story that comes after this about a really short guy who climbs up a tree, and his name is what? Zacchaeus. So these two stories are kind of sandwiched in between each other. And, and Mark, Mark and Luke, they, they, one says Jesus is leaving Jericho, the other says Jesus is coming into Jericho because that vicinity, it's kind of a, a, a weird kind of hodgepodge of different kind of areas. Mark doesn't talk about Zacchaeus. Mark stops with, with Bartimaeus. But this is that spot. Why is Zacchaeus there? Because he's working for the Romans. Because there's, this is a great spot to collect taxes. You have to imagine this story, that just tiny little first sentence there are thousands of pilgrims moving towards Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus and his disciples are just some of them. When, he, when Mark says there's a parade of people, he means there's a parade of people. And this flow of people, they're, they're all going to the same direction. Because Jerusalem would swell by sometimes hundreds of thousands of people for Passover. And Jesus timed this. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Passover lamb. Well, there's a beggar there. Of course there's a beggar there. If there's taxes, uh, tax collectors and Romans and bandits, it's a great place for someone who has no income, who has no security, who has no family, to stand by the wall and beg. And this is interesting because this is the first person that Mark names. The first healed person that Mark uses his name. Bartimaeus. He's sitting alongside the road, and when he hears Jesus, someone said it out here, you're absolutely right. He hadn't heard of Jesus already. How? Because this long train of people, this news would have traveled fast. And Bartimaeus would have heard all about Jesus. Never seen him. Probably never left this town. This is probably where he grew up. He'd never been north. He, did, he wasn't there for the feeding of 5,000. He didn't see the healing and the dead people come back to life. He heard about it. And he's begging on the side of the road. He hears the Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus, mind you, isn't a very uh, special name. Yeshua is a very common name in the ancient times. So it's not Jesus, Yeshua. It's who that Yeshua is from Nazareth. So there's only one Yeshua of Nazareth. It's Jesus. 
the rabbi, the healer, the teacher. But he's something else. He's something more. And this man knew it. This group was spot on. This guy knew it. He cries out, son of David. Yeshua, mercy, have mercy on me. And the, and the pilgrims passing by, shh, quiet. They try to hush him up. Probably for lots of reasons. Remember, you see a crowd, in, especially in Mark, the crowd is usually a bad character. They're usually not in the good light. And their motives are probably usually uh, drenched in anxiety, in kind of um, self-preservation. And so with this scene of Jericho, those people, they're saying, Son of David, you can't talk like that. One, that's a messianic title. To be the son of David means that you're taking on that kind of kingship role from David way, way, way long before the first true king of Israel. And the prophets of old for hundreds of years said that out of the root, out of the stump of Jesse, Isaiah talks, out of the stump of Jesse, the new king will come. Jesse's David's father. You can't, you can't say that. Son of David means you're basically saying this is the Messiah. Which in the Jewish mind, this is the guy who's going to come and overthrow the Romans. Bartimaeus, look around you. There are Romans all over the place. You can't talk like that. Shh, quiet. Some would say, well, what, that is outrageous. This guy is going to lead us to victory? Bartimaeus, it's, it's idiocy. Close your mouth. Shh, quiet, Bartimaeus. You're just a, a blind beggar. Clearly, you've, been, you've done something to receive a curse from God, to be blind in the first place. You have no right to say anything to anybody. Shh, quiet. You're annoying. Don't talk. Keep your mouth shut. You're going to cause insurrection. There's all kinds of reasons why those people would try to hush him up, but he doesn't care. And in fact, he yells even louder. And he doesn't change his words. He doesn't say, right, you're right. I really don't want to arouse the Romans. I'll just call him Jesus of Nazareth. No, he says, son of David. He doubles down. Mercy, have mercy on me. And Jesus is walking along with his disciples in this long parade of people. And that second time, Jesus stops in his tracks. And I can imagine he turns around and he can see this, this blind man leaning against the wall with a worn face, tired, probably filthy. And the, and the man probably doesn't actually know the direction that Jesus is in. He's trying to, like a bat, trying to echo, echo sonar, trying to get a read of where, where is he. I don't know. I can't actually see him. And Jesus says, call him over. So they call him. Who's the they? So I think, I think you're all right in terms of this weird, like, it's your lucky day. But when I hear this story in this context, I hear it almost sarcastically. I hear it like there's almost like a, well, good for you. Lucky for you. Goody two-shoes. Way to go. You, well, you got it. You got his attention now. I don't, I don't read it. Maybe it is. I don't read it like, wow, 
Bartimaeus, it's your lucky day. I read there's an underhanded, like, sniding comment to it. Get up. He's calling you to come. What a request of Jesus to ask him, a blind man, in a parade of people to get up and walk towards him. Talk about a walk of faith. Not really knowing the direction that Jesus is in, using only his hearing, crowds of people around. Imagine what it must have been like for that man to leave his spot, his security, get up and walk to Jesus in total black. But we know a little bit about Bartimaeus. Now, this is what you, you brought up, Elijah, your group, throwing off his coat. So I, when I see this, I, you know, uh, this is actually, N.T. Wright was saying that this is really actually significant. This is the, kind of the nuance of Mark's storytelling that makes him so brilliant. Because it's very likely this cloak, this coat that he had, would have sat beneath him, and that's where he would have collected his alms. That's where he's collecting his coin as he's begging. The coat is a, is a function, is a practical symbol of his blindness, of his, of his security on the generosity of people around him, or the pity of people around him. And so when I see this story playing out, I, can, I can't not see the, the cloak actually being on the ground already. But Mark tells us that he, he throws it off and he throws it away. And then he starts walking in his blindness towards Jesus. And as he takes each step, just imagine what that would be like. Step by step by step. Literally walking into the unknown towards a man that you've never met, that you've, nev you've never seen. This is the first you've ever heard of him. And you're putting all of your faith in this person. I don't know how long that walk was for him, but I can imagine it being one of those things that was like both an eternity and an instant. This kind of those juxtaposing things of like he probably could not believe what was about to happen and what was happening in the real moment. And then I can see him kind of reaching out his hand and finally getting to Jesus. And what happens next we don't know, but I, I can't imagine it without him actually touching Jesus' coat, touching his chest, feeling his face, his beard. What an extraordinary, extraordinary moment. And then Jesus says, and notice what he does not say. Jesus says, what can I do for you? What can I do for you, Bartimaeus? The blind man simply says, Rabbi, I want to see. And this beautiful literary device that he already sees Jesus. He already has faith in Christ. He wants visual sight. He wants to be able to see. He wants to leave his life behind. He's already thrown away his coat. He is committed to this purpose. Jesus, I just want to see. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't scoop into the mud. 
He doesn't spit into his hands. He doesn't rub saliva on the guy's eyes. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't lay hands on him. He doesn't look to the Father in heaven. He just says, on your way. Go. Your faith has saved and healed you. And this is a fascinating part of this scripture because in the ancient kind of context and kind of ancient Jewish thought, they, they weren't uh, dualists the way we are necessarily. They didn't think of like body, mind, and spirit separated. They're very holistic-minded. And so salvation in this sense is actually very much holistic, which is why I think Eugene Peterson used these two phrases. You're saved and you're healed. You're saved because you're healed. You're healed because you're saved. These things are kind of interlocked. They're intermeshed. It's not just a physical healing this guy has. It's a whole body life change. His whole being has changed. His whole countenance to the world has changed. He has literally, physically, sociologically been saved. He has found salvation in the real world because he's healed. In that very instant, he sees his sight and he followed Jesus down the road. Now in a loop back, I bolded that, followed Jesus because immediately, like a lot of the people that we see Jesus heals, they, they, they want to follow back. They want to follow Jesus where they go. And this time, Jesus doesn't say no, like he said to the madman and um, the Decapolis, he didn't say no, go, go home. This time, this guy just follows Jesus down the road. To what road? Well, we know, Jericho. Where's Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem. What is he going to do there? He's going to die. And then what happens? He's going to rise out of the grave three days later. And here's what's so interesting. Mark names this man because it's very likely that he was an early church leader post-resurrection, that Bartimaeus actually became a leader within the church because he followed Jesus all the way to the end. And he's probably witnessed or was around when Jesus died. And then he was probably one of those people that heard of Jesus being resurrected. And, and at this point, you know, whatever, however many months later that would have been, would he be surprised that Jesus could come back to life? No, probably not at all. Because he had been given his sight and he knew who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah. And so Bartimaeus likely was one of the early, early, early church leaders in the early Christian movement. And so this beautiful story of this kind of unexpected happenstance of all these people around, of all the people that Jesus could have talked to that day, of all the stories that Mark could have written about, it's this one, this short, punchy, very small exchange between a guy who can't see and Jesus. And there's so much in there. And at the end of it all is this unexpected salvation that we are offered. Not just salvation from, for eternity, not just salvation from hell and our, and our sins in the, in the, in the future, but salvation here and now, that Christ brings salvation now 
and then. That he brings salvation not only to our souls, but our, but our bodies, and those things are interconnected, and we can actually live in new life with Christ. And I think that's pretty, pretty profound. So, great job, everybody. You guys did amazing. And my challenge for you is, to, if you read Mark at home, just, boy, Mark, Mark is so, so, so good at just packing in so much in such a little bit of time. Don't take his words, or really any of the scriptures, for granted, because there's so much, so much in there. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that uh, you call us out that sometimes it's easy to sit on the side of the road. And it's, and it's, e- it's, it's easier to uh, ignore your call because we're even comfortable in our, in our own struggles. But you actually ask us to, to take a step of faith. That you actually invite us to hear your words and to come forward and walk even in, in blindness towards you. And Jesus, that you offer and extend salvation to us that you don't just save our souls for eternity, but you save us in the here and now, that your, your work is to redeem the whole world through your spirit by faith. And I thank you that Bartimaeus didn't stay against the wall that day, that, that he got up and can be example to all of us, that he threw off his, the things that held him back in the pursuit of you. And Jesus, I thank you that that same salvation, that same love, the same compassion, the same mercy that you extended to Bartimaeus, you extend to all of us, that you give to all of us, and that your call is not harsh, it's not loud, it's not obnoxious, it's a simple beckoning, come, come here. What can I do for you? May we be courageous to hear your call. May we be courageous to step out. May we be courageous enough to ask for the things that we need. And may we feel your love and your guidance. I thank you for all the men and the fathers and the surrogate fathers and the step-in fathers and the uncles and the brothers and the friends and all the the people that make life whole. I, I thank you for them today. I thank you for that. And we ask for a wonderful day as we celebrate. We ask for patience and and graciousness as we grieve, and may your spirit be present with us each step of these days as we, as we hear your call. In your name we pray, amen.